Just before Christmas 2019, the District of Columbia City Council, which in many ways operates more like an ambitious state legislature than your average municipal council, held a public hearing in which they heard constituent testimony on DC B23434, the Strengthening Reproductive Health Protections Amendment Act of 2019. Let's consider those words, Strengthening Reproductive Health Protections. These are political words meant to obscure the truth. What the district is doing is embracing the fiction that human rights can coherently include abortion, an act that always and everywhere involves the violent and forcible ending of human life. While the District of Columbia is tragically and misguidedly embracing a false vision of human rights, we can work toward a brighter future by fostering relationships with one another as friends, as neighbors, and as advocates willing to speak the truth even when no one seems to want to hear it. We speak with three powerful witnesses to the human right to life today, each of whom offered their own powerful testimony on behalf of human life in front of a hostile D.C. City Council. Joining us are Mary Four, Catholic Policy and Advocacy Manager at the Archdiocese of Washington, Michael New, Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and our own Katie Glenn, Government Affairs Counsel at Americans United for Life. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakley, and welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. We've got a great group of advocates today, Katie Glenn, Mary Four, and Michael New. It's so good to be joined by you today. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me today. Yep, it'll be fun. Looking forward to this. All right, Katie, tell us what happened at this D.C. City Council hearing. Well, we were certainly outnumbered, unfortunately. It really kind of had this feeling of being a done deal. I know we all sort of uh, felt it in the room when the chair of the committee started out by thanking Planned Parenthood at the top for their help in drafting this bill. And when the chair and the other committee members were taking selfies with the Planned Parenthood volunteers after the hearing, that sort of uh, bookended our day. And what the D.C. City Council was doing was really embracing a new vision of human rights. You know, we heard again and again uh, in testimony that basically mirrored uh, that of the D.C. City Council members who were advocating this legislation. The idea that human rights uh, are in their mind are only attainable if sort of the government funds them to some degree. Uh, Mary, what did you think from your perspective? City Council, I think, made it clear that they are very pro-choice, very much in favor of this bill. I think... Uh, they made it clear that they don't actually care about women. They care about expanding abortion rights as broadly as possible. Women being hurt in the process wasn't a concern for them. Yeah, we heard again and again how there was a concern about funding for abortions. They were concerned about uh, what they called gaps in uh, basically human rights access from their perspective in paying for abortions. But we heard about no gaps in terms of uh, providing women, for instance, an authentic spectrum of choice that doesn't include abortion, that maybe includes anything from uh, success in life through um, housing assistance, through tuition uh, assistance, through 
uh, job training, through any number of things that can help people in vulnerable situations. We heard nothing about those things. Michael, what about you? I mean, the hearing was tough. It was obvious that the D.C. City Council uh, was very sympathetic to this piece of legislation. They did not ask any questions to any of the pro-life witnesses, even though we've had some people who did original research and have on-the-ground experience uh, dealing with abortion in the city. So I thought that was kind of troubling. And I think that right now we're in a situation where when it comes to abortion, uh, Washington, D.C. is like the Wild West. There really is minimal to no oversight over abortion in the city. And one thing I think that was very telling that I tried to highlight in my testimony is the fact that the D.C. Uh, Department of Public Health doesn't even properly count the number of abortions that take place. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute is kind of seen as the most reliable source of data on the instance of abortion. And I compare the numbers reported by the D.C. Department of Public Health to those reported by Guttmacher. And typically, uh, the undercount is at least 40%, in some cases as high as 80%. So if the DCC Council can't even, or if the DCC Department of Public Health can't even count the number of abortions they're performed, they're certainly not doing other kinds of proper oversight either. And that's just very, very troubling. Well, and I think we heard a lot about this funding gap, because if you look at Guttmacher, if you look at NARAL's website, literally the only thing that they ding DC for as not providing is fully funding abortions. Everything else, like complete lack of health and safety regs, complete lack of reporting, as Michael mentioned, like all of these things, <laughs> Guttmacher and NARAL are like thrilled with how DC is doing. The only place that they ding the District of Columbia is because DC does not fully fund abortion. And so I think that's why we heard about that because that for them is this last little thing before DC truly is like completely ungoverned in this space. So DC is just one of a few places in the country that are going in the extreme opposite direction of, of what we could recognize as a life affirming law and policy landscape. Um, you know, California, New York, Illinois, uh, maybe the chief three among those in the sort of D.C. cohort. Um, but let's break down particularly what's happened in this uh, really bizarrely named bill, Strengthening Reproductive Health Protections. It doesn't do these things, of course, but that's the nature of, of names of, of politicized legislation today. Katie, can you break down what are the kind of the key bullet points for what this is doing? Sure. The bill has two main provisions. The first is that it wipes away any conscience rights for religious employers in the healthcare space. It expands the definition of healthcare providers to include basically everybody. It would include school nurses. It would include nursing homes. Um, anybody you could think of, it's not. They're trying to put the regulations of something like a hospital on any type of healthcare. You give somebody an aspirin, you're a healthcare provider now in DC. At the same time, what they're also doing here is adding support for abortion or participation in abortion as a protected class under DC employment law. They're saying it's a human right to, in your employment, be able to support abortion, uh, aside from being viewpoint discriminatory, only supporting people, only protecting people who support abortion, not protecting those who oppose, which Mary pointed out in her testimony, uh, contradicts decades of federal law that protects in a viewpoint neutral way. They would require religious employers to hire people who actively participate in and support abortion, even if that violates the mission of the employer. The second thing that they are trying to do here is the type of Roe Act that New York, Rhode Island, Illinois passed this year. 
that would make it virtually impossible to regulate or provide any oversight of abortion providers in the city. Yeah, it strikes me that as we're talking about this again and again, we heard the idea that uh, they were protecting access to care that's under threat, uh, when really what it's about is funding new care, um, as they would call it, and ultimately interfering politically with medicine, right? I mean, and Mary, this is going to affect all sorts of people in serious ways. Um, We hear, if we're paying attention across the country and internationally in places, people losing their jobs because of conscientious objection. Help us understand how this is going to play out in D.C. now for organizations like the Archdiocese of Washington and others. Well, the plain language of this bill states that an employer cannot discriminate or treat an individual who has made a reproductive health decision, um, in, in this case an abortion, they can't treat them in any way different to an employee who has not made that same decision. This is very problematic for our religious institutions, where especially ones like the Catholic Church, where we have people in positions where they're directly influencing children, children who have been placed in their care by their parents for the purpose of being instructed in the faith. So under this bill, 11th grade religion teacher could say, class, I'm going to be out for the next week because I'm going to have an abortion. I think it's a great idea. I know the church disagrees with it, but it's been a great decision for me. And we wouldn't be able to take action against her. She would be directly contradicting the mission and teachings of the Catholic Church and influencing children who are placed there for the purpose of learning the Catholic faith. And there would be no recourse for us. And if you hear this and you react and say, as some do, sort of uh, a reaction along the lines of, well, uh, too bad, bigot, Um, because that's the viewpoint that a fair amount of people have, that it's fine if you're going to have bigoted views, but that doesn't mean you're protected in the public square. Uh, That's the callous viewpoint some now have. But flip that around and imagine, say, you're an employee of the District of Columbia uh, City Council, perhaps, and imagine you state a view that says that uh, you think from a medical and scientific standpoint uh, that abortion is the objective killing of a human being and that it's a massive human rights violation. Can you imagine keeping your job if you say that kind of thing in that environment, right? Right. And I think an example that most people can easily grasp is that we would never ask Pepsi to keep on staff a person who was openly advertising for Coke. <laughs> that seems absurd. Yeah. In the same way, as as a Catholic institution, we reserve the right to not keep on staff someone who is openly opposing the teachings of the Catholic Church. So where does that leave us going forward then? I think that this this law is it's unconstitutional. It's subject to challenge. I'd, I hope that this law is not passed. Um, I think it would be very problematic if it were. Well, and we testified against this law a year ago, last uh, July, I believe. We did testify against this bill, and it was not passed. It was shelved, and it was reintroduced in fall of 2019. So we were able to convince them once not to pass it. I hope that that can happen again. Katie, one of the things we heard was an advocate for abortion uh, who was a doctor uh, who also performs abortions. And she made, uh, I think to a regular person, what sounded like a pretty strange comment, which she said that, you know, uh, if you are a young girl, if you're like 14 years old and you're pregnant, you're not a minor. She said this as if she's saying that the sky is green. Uh, and as if people aren't going to react against that. Can you help us explain what that's about and what the implications are in D.C.? 
Well, Washington, D.C. is one of just three jurisdictions across the United States that does affirmatively permit underage girls to get abortions without any type of restriction or parental involvement. And so I think that this strange definitional change where a 14-year-old is no longer a girl or a minor, she's a woman and an adult if she becomes pregnant, is where this is coming from. Uh, Like you said, it makes no sense uh, on its face. In no other context would this be true. Uh, No other medical context. Certainly a pregnant 14-year-old can't go buy a beer. And you look at at the same time that we're living through Congress apparently set to raise the age to 21 to buy cigarettes, tobacco products. D.C. has moved in the other direction and said, if you're 12 and pregnant, perhaps even as a result of a situation of abuse or exploitation, don't worry, you're a legal adult. Yeah, it it really uh, strains credulity for why this would make any sense or why anyone would go to the mat to defend this position. But it just opens the doors even further to make it impossible for the city of Washington to regulate, protect girls, or otherwise challenge the ability of a minor girl to get an abortion or report on it. So let's look at the real language of the bill. It says the district government shall not, in the case of every individual, so this includes children, deny, interfere with, or restrict in the regulation or provision of benefits, facilities, services, or information, the right of an individual, including individuals under state control, to choose or refuse to carry a pregnancy to term, to give birth to a child, or to have an abortion. So what they're saying is there can be no restrictions at all. And where we've seen this come out in other states, it's been a huge problem. In the Kermit Gosnell grand jury proceedings, the Pennsylvania Department of Health said that they never uh, went and inspected his clinic because they thought that any clinic inspection would violate Roe v. Wade. So they felt like they couldn't do it. So I, can, I think it's completely foreseeable that if this law passed and is the law of the land in Washington, D.C., that you would have a, a doctor performing an abortion on a 14-year-old girl and not calling the police to investigate who impregnated her because they would th- see like getting the police involved as somehow restricting her access to abortion. And I think that's really scary when we look at the problems with tr- uh, child sex trafficking we have in this city. And we've got to make these things concrete, right? Because uh, so much of politics is abstract. There was just a case a few weeks ago of a 37-year-old Texas man uh, who was sentenced to prison uh, for exactly this, Katie. He had taken a 12-year-old girl, the daughter of an ex-girlfriend of his, uh, who he had sexually abused and gotten pregnant. He had taken her in for an abortion. And because in Texas, uh, they still care about um, minors, uh, the Planned Parenthood had to report that and it was investigated and, and the situation was uncovered and he's now uh, been brought to justice. These are the sorts of abusers we're talking about that are essentially be- being given free reign in the District of Columbia. Um, so this is not a, a value neutral bill. It's actually affirming um, a sort of a, a set of anti-values in a sense. Mary, as Katie mentioned, one of the features of this bill would be to essentially make it impossible for Uh, mothers and fathers to maintain a serious relationship with their child, really. Um, It it sort of strips them of a a key role in the life of their child. Can you speak to that? Sure. Well, right now in the District of Columbia, as Katie mentioned, a minor can obtain an abortion without their parents' knowledge or consent. 
This bill preys upon the poor and it creates an environment where conditions can be completely unsterile, completely unregulated. A doctor without a license can already perform abortions in D.C., but under this bill, no regulation or restrictions means maybe he doesn't even have to have gone to medical school. And, you know, I think the advocates of this bill constantly spoke of back alley abortions and the lack of access and women dying because of the lack of access to abortion. But I don't understand what they think is going to happen when we remove all regulations and all restrictions so that the poor within D.C. are stuck going to facilities that are using single-use instruments the hundredth time and operating on tables that haven't been cleaned in weeks. We heard the Yelp reviews at the hearing. They were horrifying. We don't want those conditions to be rampant. And as Steve Aiden has said here at Americans United for Life, you know, what Roe v. Wade did uh, was not make abortion safe, you know, to the extent that so-called back alley abortions occurred at all prior to Roe in America. What Roe did was to essentially legalize those same practitioners. We've seen some of the abortionists, uh, folks like Kermit Gosnell, but particularly folks like Ulrich Klopfer last year, uh, gruesome, gruesome cases of, of human beings stored in his house, in his car, in his garage, uh, serial killer type behavior. Uh, and these are the people who practiced abortion before Roe. What did Roe do? It allowed him to put his shingle up and to practice, you know, his form of medicine uh, on Main Street. Uh, so it didn't make the procedure safer. It didn't change any reality about what's happening. And I think you're right, Mary. It, it uniquely exploits uh, the vulnerable, the poor. And we see even in the way that D.C. statute now considers, uh, you know, young girls who are pregnant and it simply says, well, if they're pregnant, then they're no longer vulnerable, essentially by saying they're no longer minors. Uh, and so it's, it's a really unfortunate uh, abuse of language in that way. You know, Michael, I know you spoke to the regulatory aspect in particular, the need for regulatory oversight, the sort of things Katie's talking about to, to ensure that a, a Kermit Gosnell doesn't happen in D.C. Safety checks, medical compliance, uh, these things are going to be an impossibility if this sort of thing advances um, we won't be able to ensure that coercion and abuse uh, doesn't occur. Coercion and abuse seems sort of like a feature rather than a bug of this of this legislation. Where's your Where's your head at on this at this point? I mean, I think that you know, someone who's a professor and who studies the public health research on abortion, I just think the evidence is very clear that when there's just less oversight of abortion, that leads to public health problems. And I can think of a lot of studies that back this up. Um, thankfully, we do have 37 states that do have parental involvement laws which require that minor girls either notify or get consent from their parents before they get an abortion. But there's 13 states and the District of Columbia don't have that. And we see what happens in these states. We see that on balance, there's higher minor abortion rates. We also see these pro-life parental vomit laws also reduce teen pregnancy rates. They reduce STDs. They also uh, reduce teen suicide rates. So oversight has um, you know, good public health impacts. And again, I think it's clear we need more oversight, not less. I'll give another example. Uh, chemical abortions are becoming a lot more common. Uh, if you look at the data, even though overall abortion numbers are declining, uh, chemical abortions are becoming a greater percentage of the overall share. Uh, we have research on chemical abortions. It comes from Medicaid data from California. So it's not a survey, it's comprehensive Medicaid data. And their data clearly shows that when women get a chemical abortion, where there's typically a lot less medical supervision, complication rates increase and increase dramatically. 
the study I saw showed that chemical abortions have a complication rate four times higher than surgical abortions. So it's just clear that anytime you reduce oversight, that's going to hurt public health. Uh, this is a bad piece of legislation. It's going to hurt public health, health outcomes here in D.C. For, for girls and women. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's unfortunate that uh, you know, we even have to spend our time testifying against this. Uh, it's a bad piece of legislation. It shouldn't even be considered. Yeah, when we heard at one point about statistics regarding abortions that occur in the district, uh, the only feedback we got from a council member was, uh, was what exactly? The person who testified on that said, we do reporting so that we can see the areas where we need to provide more abortions. So it was reporting to create more access to abortion, not to find out who's being targeted for abortion or who is being forced into abortions or even who doesn't have the resources that they would need to carry a child to term. And that's, that's I think, the saddest part of this bill is it doesn't recognize at all that women who are having abortions aren't evil women who are excited about going in to have an abortion. They're desperate they're terrified, they're alone, and they think that they have no one to help them. So if this bill did anything to help women, we could find some sort of light in it. But all it does is put women who are already desperate and terrified in a corner and tell them abortion is really your only option. Which is amazing, right? Because this is always, always, always advanced under the auspice of choice. We want to protect choice. And you're right, Mary, if you were to survey uh, women who feel compelled to have an abortion, that's just it. They would feel compelled. They would say, there's no other option. I can't continue to live my life, either because of an abusive boyfriend or because of a home situation or because of financial duress or whatever it is. And you say, if you don't feel like you have a choice, at what point is this just a coercive society that we're perpetuating? And there are organizations in this city that work to provide women with an actual choice. Organizations like Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center and the Northwest Center. But this bill tries to shut those organizations down. It tries to take away a woman's actual choice to live a life that she would, she would be proud of and want that involves her child. Katie, didn't we hear from someone that uh, the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center in particular, as an example, that, you know, a Planned Parenthood employee could quit their job and then apply for a job at the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center or a place like it. Uh, and then if turned down, sue under this new law uh, on the auspices that they've been discriminated against. In other words, a pro-abortion person trying to work at a pro-life center and then being able to sue for discrimination when they're not hired. That's exactly right. We had this moment of quiet part loud where, um, as we were discussing the problems with the conscience rights of the employers being at stake here and them being potentially forced to hire someone, we actually saw a young woman stand up and say, I'll go apply for a job at Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center. And when they turn me down, I'll file a lawsuit against them. And so this is a real thing. Uh, you know, they try to say, they use sanitized language, right? Like reproductive choice and non-discrimination. But what they're talking about is trying to shut down pregnancy care centers that provide women with authentic choices. And it's a question about whether we want a genuinely pluralistic society, right? You think about it, I think, Mary, your, you know, sort of Coke and Pepsi uh, analogy is a great one. It's and in the same vein, you think like if, if somebody were to apply for a job at Apple and say, yeah, my last job was at Microsoft and my goal here is to sabotage your company. Um, I think it would be a little bit unreasonable for Apple to be sued for discrimination when they decide not to hire that person, 
I think that would actually just be prudent for them not to do that. And I think it's important we underscore, Michael, you mentioned chemical abortions. So we're distinguishing between surgical abortions. These are maybe what we can call traditional abortions that would occur in uh, what looks like a doctor's office at what looks like a hospital type setting uh, where there are instruments where the, the, the baby is um, closer to birth. Uh, and a chemical abortion um, or what some call a, a medical abortion or a self-managed abortion, this is the, the words of one of the D.C. City Council members, uh, is what? Oh, that's the, the RE46 pill. And the RE46 uh, was approved by the FDA in 2000. You know, I think the Clinton administration uh, put a lot of pressure on the FDA to give this approval uh, and there have been you know, negative health impacts of this legalization as, as a result. As I said before, a very well-done study of California uh, that looked at Medicaid data. Again, it wasn't a survey. It was comprehensive. Looked at a set of women who had surgical abortions. Looked at another set of women who had these chemical RE46 abortions and found the complication rate for the chemical abortions was four times higher. Uh, again, there's, you know, mainstream media has even picked this up to some degree, and they usually don't report on issues of this nature. So again, I just think that it's clear that when there's just less oversight of abortion, leads to bad public health outcomes. Uh, this is you know a bad piece of legislation, and uh, you know I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm glad I have the opportunity to testify against it with some other good uh, good pro life witnesses. So Michael, just to underscore, what would a world look like in the district or more broadly where there was better reporting? You know, what would you want the average person to be able to access? How would they access it? How would it shape discussion or thought? I mean, first off, we would want to know. Um, information about gestational age of the unborn children who, who are aborted. I think the most important thing that they could report, which they don't report, are complications due to abortion and deaths due to abortion. Uh, that I run the local 40 Days for Life campaign, uh, and we do try to maintain a consistent prayer vigil outside the D.C. Planned Parenthood. And I can think that twice in the past 13 months, uh, one of our prayer warriors has seen an ambulance pull up. Uh, one case, I think that Operation Rescue tracked the 911 call, and that ambulance was there because the woman was hemorrhaging, probably after an abortion took place. So I think certainly information about kind of health and safety risks would be something that would be very useful. And just other things about uh, who abortions are performed on, uh, the education level of the women, uh, how the abortions are being paid for. Again, there's a lot of uh, states doing good things, and some states actually are able to release data on a monthly basis. And that can be very useful. It can document... Uh, you know, sex education programs. It can document uh, contraception programs. Uh, that uh, it's an important public policy issue uh, that I think gets ignored in some cases because it is so sensitive. But you know, better information I think would benefit everybody. To be honest, I don't think that anyone should ever be scared of more data or better data on any public policy issue. And it's frustrating me to me that most groups support legal abortion at best are indifferent and in some cases oppose just basic regulation like counting the number of abortions that are performed. Uh, I think that's just tragic. Even though the abortionists are, of course, counting, right? You know, so the, the data exists in well, some forms. Actually, I'm not even sure they are, that the uh, abortionists who testified yesterday said she didn't know how many abortions she performed. And I thought that was very telling. It just seemed like very callous that uh, the numbers just sort of pile up and uh, she just doesn't seem to be even aware of the number that she's even doing. So I thought that was a very, very telling quote by her. I've never heard an abortionist say that they have any sense of the number. They'll usually say something like thousands, but they they are, yeah, always obfuscating with the numbers. And I think it is a combination of not wanting to tell the truth about it because the number is so high and not maybe wanting to know yourself. 
Yeah, it makes sense, right? You would think that the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, which tracks all sorts of data relating to public health outcomes and, and public well-being, would track this as a matter of course, wouldn't you? Right. I mean, they, they do track, but the problem is reporting is voluntary, and many states don't report. Uh, California has not reported since 1997. Uh, Maryland frankly doesn't report. Uh, D.C. did not report uh, for the 2016 data that they just released. And um, again, I really think that better reporting uh, would be an excellent idea. Uh, Senator Cotton and Senator Ernst uh, do have a bill they've introduced in the Senate that would strengthen the reporting requirements. Uh, I don't know the future of that bill, but I think that's a good idea. And I want to thank both of those senators for taking some leadership and introducing that uh, that piece of legislation. So um, again, I think that uh, the CDC has more accurate data and more updated data on a whole range of things, including dental visits by senior citizens. So we know more about grandma's dentures then we know about the instance of abortion in this country. And again, I just think that's tragic. Yeah, it's amazing, right? When you put it in those terms, you think it's so sensible to address this. And then you've got states like uh, Pennsylvania, a lot of states like that, where you'll have a kind of this football back and forth, uh, where if, if it's one political administration, you'll have abortion reporting. And if it's another, you won't. So you'll have these gaps of, of four or eight years. And you think, uh, shouldn't we take this out of the political realm? You know, if this is healthcare, which is a, a PR phrase we heard at the council hearing, abortion is health care. Abortion care is care. Uh, if this PR were true, wouldn't it make sense that we would want to track it like we do any other any other public health outcome? So it's it's a little bit difficult because on the one hand, we want to say, well, we should do it for that reason. On the other, we don't want to recognize the, the fiction that it's health care. Um, but it, it does make sense that we would track this uh, because otherwise uh, we can't ensure um, that outcomes are positive at all. Let's shift gears for a minute uh, and, and look ahead uh, over the course of the year to come and the future more broadly. Um, I want to start with Mary. You know, you're coming at this from a Catholic perspective, um, but you're also uh, a resident and, and um, a young person who's looking to make a life uh, in the District of Columbia uh, and in the wider area here. What are the signs of, uh, of hope? What are the things that you take hope uh, from and, and you look forward to in terms of building a, a brighter future? I think a source of hope is 51% of women identify as pro-life. I, I was formerly the director of life issues for the Archdiocese of Washington. And I had the opportunity to work with Project Rachel Ministry. And Project Rachel provides hope and healing for women who have had abortion. These women are some of our strongest advocates in the pro-life movement. Women who say, that was the wrong decision. That decision hurt me. But I know that God loves me, and I have received healing and, and forgiveness for that decision. These women are incredibly pro-life um, and willing to do whatever to help other women make the right decision when in a similar situation. Um, and, and Project Rachel is a great source of hope for our future. What do you see as some of the challenges uh, or opportunities coming up uh, in your work uh, in Catholic policy at the Archdiocese of Washington and in the year to come? In the state of Maryland, we know that there's an abortion bill coming along that would put abortion through nine months in the Maryland state constitution. Um, a New York-style bill, basically. Yes, yes, and um, that would obviously be very problematic and would not allow for future generations to change and put restrictions on abortion laws in the state of Maryland. Um, so that's obviously largely challenging. In Maryland, we also see an assisted suicide bill coming once again this year where 
it's already legal in the District of Columbia, and, but this bill, once again, attacks the vulnerable. It says, if you're living a life with a disability, it's not worth living, and you should end it. Um, so again, it's an attack on life. Um, and these are, are areas that are very challenging because it's a struggle to fight against a culture that is constantly telling you life only has value if it meets certain qualifications. And yet it's an amazing thing, too, to the point that you mentioned with this Gallup poll that 51% of, of American women now identify as pro-life, uh, a majority. That's a major advance. It's a major step of, of the fact that it's 51% identifying in a life-affirming way in a culture that almost universally tells all of us no one who's respectable really thinks that way. And yet 51% in this hostile culture are willing to say, no, actually, I do. So you wonder, it's, it's probably actually higher than 51%. You know, there's going to be some percentage there. Michael could probably speak to this better than any of us. Some percentage of folks who aren't uh, identifying as pro-life for whatever course of pressure. I think the advances in science, the advances in the ultrasound, those are helping us. It's, it's impossible to deny that an ultrasound shows a baby in the womb. That's, it's not a clump of cells it shows that a people baby are picture. showing on their Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know polling shows there's a lot more consensus about sanctity of life issues than what the media reports. I mean, the pro-life, pro-choice survey question is frequently asked, and I think you know pundits and survey research firms like it because it shows polarization and division. But questions about incremental laws don't get nearly as much attention. I mean, there's majorities don't want taxpayer dollars paying for elective abortions. Pernal involvement always polls very well. Bans on third trimester, second trimester abortions perform well. I think even some people who are pro-choice and might identify that way don't like abortion. You know, they might think it should be a legal option in some cases, but in general, I think you could probably get a super majority of Americans to say that public policy should encourage women toward childbirth and discourage abortion. You know, obviously that's not uh, going to be a position that you know everybody holds, but I think there's you know a lot we can do even you know when abortion is legal to build a culture of life. And one thing that I often talk about as often as I can to pro-life audiences is that abortion numbers are going down. Uh, data from both the CDC and Guttmacher shows that abortion rates declined by 50% since 1980. And I think that's a lot more telling than we realize. I think if I went back into a time machine and it was 1980, and I was talking to pro-life leaders of the day like Mildred Faye Jefferson and Nellie Gray and Joe Scheidler and Jack Wilkie, and I've said, listen, I've seen the future. In 2019, we've not overturned Roe v. Wade, but we have gotten the abortion rate down by half. I think they've been skeptical. That's what has happened. So obviously we need to fight this battle on a variety of fronts, but uh, there are ways even under the Roe Casey regime to build a culture of life, and we're doing just that. Well, and I think the talking points that we've heard forever and ever, we heard this at the hearing about how abortion is so common. Everyone you know has had one. It's the most common shared experience that women in this country have. And as those numbers have fallen, that's just not true anymore. And so I think part of why more and more women now, the majority are identifying as pro-life is because they see the humanity of the child. They don't Everyone they know isn't having abortions. It is relatively rare, although the activists don't want to use that word anymore who are pro-abortion and hopefully continuing to fall even more. All right. So, Katie, uh, as we close our conversation, your work at Americans United for Life is to advance life-affirming law and policy across the states. So give us some signs for hope in the year to come. 
Well, in 2019, 58 pro-life laws passed across 22 states. So I think that's a wonderful cause for celebration and also great motivation to do even more in 2020, which is an election year. So there are going to be legislators dug in on both sides as they keep an eye towards November. But I think that you know, some of what we've seen here in Washington, D.C., we're seeing elsewhere and we have opportunities all across this country to affirm life through state law. Step by step, right? It's a strategy that Americans United for Life has been advancing since before Roe, which is that um, we didn't come to this place overnight. Uh, this didn't drop out of the sky, out of the blue. Uh, it came to us over decades and decades of advances um, from folks who were at best confused about the nature of human rights, about the nature of human life, the science and medicine of human life. And we're working uh, cheerfully, step-by-step, step, uh, to bring us to a, a place that is life-affirming, that says that human rights are a reality. Uh, and here's uh, the nature of human rights, which is that uh, we can have none of them uh, if we don't have the foundational human right to life. As, uh, as we know, uh, we do a thing every episode to close us out called Our Shot of gratitude. Uh, we share something that we are grateful for. So uh, Katie, I'll start with you. What is something you are grateful for? So I recently bought a used book that was published by Americans United for Life in 1972. I like where this is going. It's Good. called, <laughs> it came from the University of Hawaii Law Library. So it's really uh, lived lives before it came to me, but it's called Abortion and Social Justice. It was published in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade. Um, was in the court, and I can't wait to read what we had to say about abortion and social justice almost 50 years ago. It's amazing. I can't imagine what is somebody reading this on, on the beach in Maui or something. You know, who's <laughs> where did this book come from? Who knows? I'll be reading it uh, on the train to Philly. <laughs> Less exciting views, but uh, the content should be stellar. Um, so, Michael, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Good for my parents. That uh, you know, I think that people don't always appreciate the sacrifices your parents make for you. Until you get a lot older, my parents certainly made a lot of sacrifices for me, and I'll be grateful for that. Grateful for my job at CUA, and coming up this month is the March for Life, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, it's great to see 500,000 of my closest friends rallying for the sanctity of all human life. Yeah, Michael. Likewise, I'm particularly grateful for the March for Life. It's it's the kind of capstone public witness um, for life affirming Americans. It happens in D.C., but it's happening increasingly across the country. Uh, there are uh, marches uh, on the West Coast. And uh, there's public witness of all sorts uh, at high schools and at, at grade schools and at colleges across the country as people recognize that this is something that matters and it's something that uh, has come to sort of speak for the entire spectrum of life issues, um, not just abortion, but um, suicide by physician, uh, euthanasia, patient protections, and everything in between. Uh, and it's something that I hope um, when the day comes when Roe is reversed by the Supreme Court and the issue is returned to uh, the American people, that we can continue to do the March for Life because uh, threats to human life are never going to go away. And it's always going to be important uh, to continue to witness to that. Um, Mary, what is something you are grateful for? I think all of this talk about uh, the lack of regulation ab around abortion and um, getting women more access to abortion makes me incredibly grateful for my mom and for her decision to choose life, um, even when times were scary, uh, to, to choose life then. And um, it's helped me to realize that anything good or, or bad that I have accomplished is all the result of my mom's decision uh, to choose life. And so incredibly grateful to her for that. That's awesome. Well, 
Mary, Katie, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. All right, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate the show, leave a review, and tell a friend about life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, drop us an email at life at AUL.org. I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. <laughs>